Hi, I'm your host, Lillian Yang. And I'm your host, Fakri Shafai. And you are listening to Food Nonfiction, the incredible true stories behind food. Hey, food buffs. Have you ever wondered about where the idea of craft beers came from? Why are there so many beers called craft beers? Why aren't all beers just called beer? I never wondered about craft beer before because I had this vague idea of what it was. To me, craft beer was just any beer that was interesting. But then I read this book called Drink Beer, Think Beer, Getting to the Bottom of Every Pint. And that inspired this episode about the origins of craft beer. My name is John Hall, and I'm the author of Drink Beer, Think Beer, Getting to the Bottom of Every Pint. First, let's start with understanding what craft beer is. The most straightforward way to do this is to say that a craft beer is a beer made by a craft brewer. The Brewers Association defines a craft brewer as small, independent, and traditional. Small means that you can make no more than 6 million barrels of beer a year. Independent means that your brewer cannot be 25% or more owned or controlled by a non-craft brewer. And traditional requires that your beers are brewed with accepted ingredients. With that definition, you'd think that craft beers must have been around for a long time, because if you go back far enough, everything used to be on a smaller, more local scale. When you think about the early 1900s and you think about our food traditions in a lot of ways, everything was local back then. And and we could point to where everything on our dinner tables came from. So our grandparents, our great-great-grandparents, and, and older generations than that, uh, you know, the meat that was on the table came from the butcher, came from the farm, and the, the, the produce came from the green grocer, came from the garden. Uh, if you had bread, it was fresh baked or it came from a baker. And cheese came from the dairy, and, and our beer came from local breweries as well. But the idea of craft beer is a post-prohibition concept. Back when everything was essentially a craft product, you didn't need a term to specify that something was made with care on a small scale. Before Prohibition hit in 1920, there were over 4,000 breweries in the United States, and that included both large and small brewing companies. Just like you could go to your local bakery to get bread, or your local butcher to get meat, you could go to your local brewer to get beer. So it, it was this very sort of personal connection that existed. And by the time we got out of Prohibition, um, you know, we were down to a few hundred breweries. And then by the time we got to the 1970s, uh, we were we were down to about 50 uh, or so. And at that point, our beer culture had changed where we basically had this beer-flavored beer. Beer-flavored beer is how John describes beers that don't have a distinct quality to them. Beer-flavored beer is like a person that's easy to get along with because they don't offend anyone. It's probably not something that you would love or hate. And we know it as as Budweiser or Bud Light or Coors Banquet. Um, And there's nothing wrong with those beers. It's just that they didn't have a lot of personality to them. It was sort of this one-size-fits-all. And and our fresh-baked bread had become Wonder Bread, and our real cheese had become Velveeta, and we had lost a lot of our food traditions, Um, you know, thanks to automation, thanks to advances in food science, uh, and thanks to, you know, sort of people just, like, losing their way um, with what we were consuming and, and why we were consuming it. Prohibition led to the shutdown of many brewing companies, and after it ended in 1933, the big brewing companies took hold. For a brewing company to survive Prohibition, 
they needed to be able to make something other than beer. For example, years before prohibition, Coors had already started diversifying, investing in ceramics. They acquired the Harold China and Pottery Company, and in 1920, this was renamed the Coors Porcelain Company. Another brewing company, Yingling, started an ice cream business in 1920, and Anheuser Busch made non-alcoholic drinks and ice cream to get through the prohibition years. So, following prohibition, only the strong few survived, and we were left with a lot less diversity. All we had was mass-produced beer-flavored beer. It was in this environment that the concept of a craft beer was born. The idea that something made on a smaller scale is unique and valuable. Decades after prohibition ended, the New Albion Brewing Company opened in 1976. It's considered the first post-prohibition microbrewery. It was founded by Jack McAuliffe. We called up Jack's daughter to learn more about his story. My name is Renee DeLuca. I'm the daughter of Jack McAuliffe, who is credited with having the very first post-prohibition microbrewery in the United States. Fantastic! And let's go back to the beginning. Can you tell me a bit about what your childhood was like? Well, first and foremost, I did not grow up with Jack. I am a reunited adoptee, so、uh, he is my birth father, and I only met him in the year 2000, so not too very long ago. But we have forged a great relationship and bonded over the beer.、Uh, my my childhood was in. Maryland, just outside of Washington D.C., with a wonderful couple who raised me, and、um, I didn't know about my dad's ties to craft beer until I found him. So that was pretty exciting. So when did you find?、Um, did you find both your birth parents or just your dad?、Uh, no, first I found my birth mom. The year that I turned thirty and had my daughter,、um, I met Linda, and、uh, Linda and Jack had a relationship when they were at boarding school. Uh, in the '60s, and、uh, it's because there was a co-ed boarding school that I exist. <laughs> so finding Linda eventually led me to to finding Jack. So when I found out that my father was the father of craft beer and had this microbrewery years ago in Sonoma, California, in the '70s,、um, I thought, "Wow, that's so very interesting." I always knew beer was in my blood, and I used that tagline on my blog, BrewersDaughter.com. I've always said, "Beer is in my blood." So, of course,、um, I didn't know my dad when he was younger. But after he left、um, the boarding school that he attended with my birth mom, he went on to sail in the navy, and he was stationed in Scotland. And that's where he tasted those amazing ales, porters, and stouts. And when he came back to the United States, he couldn't find those beers. All there was was, you know, Bud Miller Coors, and so. He said, "I guess if I want to drink those, I'll have to brew them myself." So that was the root of New Albion and、uh, his project there. Yeah, so I'm sure he shared some stories with you about I don't know starting New Albion, working on the beers. Yeah, can you tell me some stories he's shared? Sure. So of course, back then, you couldn't just open up a catalog and say, "I'd like this brew kettle, and you know, I need、uh, some hops." So let me. You know, order some. There, it was nothing like that. He had a, he rented、um, basically a, a barn、uh, from a guy and created a brewery out of it. He named it New Albion because New Albion is the name that Sir Francis Drake gave that part of the New World when he landed there. And the ship that is on the original New Albion label was 
the Golden Hind, which is Sir Francis Drake's ship. So he imparted a sense of history to the beer just from the outset and naming it. And he got to work, you know, making connections with local farmers and getting hops from them. People will ask him, you know, well, why did you use Cascade hops? And Jack will say, because that's what the farmer had. And that's truly how it was. And so he revamped, you know, old Pepsi kegs and dairy equipment. And he was a welder in the Navy. So he w- welded his first brew kettle. You know, he created everything literally with his hands from the ground up. So he loves to tell stories about that and about when he needed to order malt. He used a two-row malt for his pale ale. And uh, so he went to uh, the guys that order malt, uh, you know, some of the bigger brewers, and they said, oh, sure, here's the guy, you know, call him up. And he he called the guy to order the malt, and he said, I need a sack of malt. And he's like, oh, no, you need to order a train car. We we sell it by the train car. (laughs) So he had to buy an entire train car of malt and store it and keep it from, you know, going bad and he was able to use it in his beer but there was no way you could buy a couple of bags of malt back then so just a lot of the challenges of being the first jack gained some of his brewing knowledge from a professor named michael lewis who had moved to the united states from england bringing with him all he had learned from the british school of malting and brewing when he was still in his early 20s professor michael lewis established a brewing science program at UC Davis in the 1960s. Yes, my name is Michael Lewis. I live in Davis, California, and I've worked for the University of California teaching brewing for the best part of 50 years. So I've read that you worked with Jack McAuliffe to help him start the new Albion Brewery. Could you tell me about that? Well, yes, Jack, uh, quite a lot of the early uh, brewers would come by Davis and have a chat and uh, Jack was no exception, and uh, he came by. We gave him uh, the yeast that he used. Um, he didn't have a, 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 a brewer's yeast, so it so happened that Professor Farf was a great collector of yeasts and so had a huge collection of yeasts, both from nature and from the industry. And so we, we were able to provide uh, Jack with a, a yeast strain uh, that he continued to use uh for well for the short time that his company was in, it, it was functioning but uh, jack was a character and of course he was the first um he was the, actually the first true microbrewer in the sense that we understand it today uh, that is starting from scratch and building your own equipment and and so on and so when jack started up um it did open my eyes to other possibilities and I could see that with his enthusiasm and with his devotion, with his knowledge and with his drive and ambition and entrepreneurship, that he could be the very first of a large number of people who would follow in those footsteps. And almost immediately, people started paying attention to this. And he was profiled in the New York Times and in the Washington Post and in Time Magazine. And I think NPR did a, did a, a series on him uh, at some point. And, you know, people started coming and seeing, you know, here's this crazy guy who opened up a brewery. And Jack had a, had a four-barrel brew house. So there's 31 gallons in a barrel. Jack was making four barrels at a time. Um, and then along comes uh, literally hundreds of small breweries, and later, of course, thousands. 
and suddenly the demand for people from from people who wanted to be brewers and brewers who wanted to train people uh, grew very rapidly. Where did the term craft beer come from? There's a guy named Vince Catone who wrote about it in a book uh, years ago, and there was no set definition. Vince's book, called Good Beer Guide, Brewers and Pubs of the Pacific Northwest, was published in 1986, containing the term craft beer. It was just basically a way to describe some of the smaller breweries uh, that had popped up around the country. And uh, when some of these small breweries opened up originally, they were just calling themselves microbrew. Um, and that was just because they were ridiculously small in comparison to Anheuser-Busch or Coors Brewing Company or Miller Brewing Company. Um, but, you know, the term microbrew uh, was fraught with problems where uh, some of the larger uh, breweries were, were battling against the smaller guys and basically saying, like, you know, micro doesn't mean good. And uh, the consumers at the time sort of followed through with that. So there needed to be a new word uh, or so brewers thought to uh, identify themselves uh, and sort of convey uh, a sense of uh, importance, uh, a sense of flavor, a sense of place, uh, and a sense of differentiating themselves as a as a small batch product, uh, as opposed to something that was made in a hulking factory on the side of the highway. And craft is the word that uh, uh, that really picked up and took off for the brewers. Nowadays, you might hear a brewery described as independent rather than craft. Okay. Why that word? Well, independence, they can now say, you know, uh, if, you, if you say you're an independent brewer, you can say, well, this is our ownership. We're not owned by Anheuser and we're not owned by uh, a large corporation somewhere. We're a mom and pop shop or we're a small group of friends who got together to create a brewery. And uh, if you see a, the seal and they created a seal of an upside down bottle, uh, that you can put on your 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 packaging or put on your taproom wall and say, if you see this, it basically means that we uh, meet this definition of of small brewer of craft brewer, um, and you can know that your dollars go towards supporting our small business. So my final question is, do you have any final words on sort of the story of craft beer that you'd like people to know? Yes, what I would like to say is to remind people that. Um, the big brewers like Anheuser Busch and Miller Coors did not become big brewers because they make crap beer. Uh, they make superb beer of a particular style, and so it's important that people enjoy their craft brewer and enjoy their special beers from a small brewery around the corner, without indulging in criticism of the big brewers. Because to tell the truth, if it were not for the big brewers, the small brewers could not exist. And so it's it's important to to treat all beers with respect, whoever is making them, because all brewers and all breweries are deeply invested in making superb products. So there you have it, food buffs. We hope you enjoyed the story of craft beer and that you have wonderful holiday plans coming up. So, Fakri, what's up? Oh, you know, getting really excited to leave for California tomorrow. Yay, to see your family. Yes, I'm so excited to go back to California. Although I have to be honest, the weather here in Ontario is not as bad as it was this time last year. So I'm actually kind of loving life right now. Oh, because you don't... Well, wait, what's the temperature in California? 
Oh, in California, it's going to be 15 degrees. So for our U.S. listeners, um, it's going to be in the 50s, which is lovely. Yeah, that uh, compared- sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, lately here, it hasn't gone down to minus five. So for our U.S. listeners, like mid-20s. Um, but I'm just really happy that my eyelashes haven't frozen together <laughs> yet this year. So, you know, it's the small victories in life. <laughs> Have you uh, bought all your Christmas presents yet? Well, since I'm a postdoc, we, uh, my family and I don't really do presents right now. Uh, instead, we did our big trip to Italy. So no, I didn't have to go shopping or anything this year. I guess it's all right. You don't get presents and you don't get presents. Yep. And I'm okay with that. <laughs> this year, my mom bought herself presents and was just like, oh, by the way, you guys are paying for this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. That laugh probably got really loud on that. That's you might okay. have to cut that. <laughs> All right, food buffs. We hope you enjoyed the episode and learned as much about craft brewery as we did. And please do leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that you listen to podcasts, for example, Google Podcasts or Pandora. And we would love to read the reviews. We always read the reviews. So say something nice. (laughs) Have a wonderful holiday season, food buffs, and we'll talk to you in the new year. Bye. Bye.